I don't need help. I'm not in an abusive relationship. This is just how it is for us. It's a lie we tell ourselves, one that many in abusive relationships repeat until they believe it. But there's hope. Welcome to I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship, a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence. This show is about hope. You will hear from survivors of abuse, and their stories may sound familiar. They may even inspire hope. Our goal is to connect with others in these toxic relationships to offer that hope, and with supporters of our mission, anyone willing to help get rid of abuse in our culture. We also talk with the experts in the field, from the officers on the front lines of domestic abuse calls to the therapists and advocates helping survivors navigate this complicated road of recovery. If you're in need of help, please visit our website or call our 24-7 hotline, 800-828-2023. And if this is an emergency and you need help immediately, please call 911. And welcome to the show. I am Dan, and I am happy to have you listening today to our podcast, I'm Not In An Abusive Relationship. In particular, this episode, where we welcome someone to the show from a ways away via our uh, remote world that we are in with everything COVID, but also the fact that Kevin McNeil is not in Michigan, so couldn't come to the studio. But Kevin joins us now, and and we, we invited Kevin on uh, to talk about his survivor story to talk about the work that he does, talk about the books that he's written. There's a whole lot to unpack here. So I want you to stay with us through the entire interview here, the entire conversation. Um, so Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, I was looking forward to this uh, all last week and I couldn't wait. Good. Well, so the, so the the way I learned about you was through this article in, uh, in the AJC, the Atlanta Connection. Um, Atlanta Journal, right? Uh, and it talks about you being an ex-detective who actually helped victims and survivors, but yeah. you had a unique perspective because you yourself are a survivor. Do I have yeah. that right? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it was interesting. Uh, I never chose to become a special victim detective or a police officer for that matter. Uh, at the age of 12, uh, I was bullied a lot in school. I, I was born with a speech impediment and a lot of kids bullied me. I came from an impoverished neighborhood and found a single mom. I mean, she dated, but it was it was mostly her doing the, the raising and the work. And I never knew my father. And not only was I bullied outside of my family, I was bullied within my family because of that. And so even at a young age, I felt, um, I felt insecure. I felt, I felt like I was unworthy of anything, particularly love. And to top that off, one day, you know, uh, at the age of 12, I was walking home from a, a friend's house. Um, and ironically, I, was, I went to this friend, me and him connected because we had one thing in common. Uh, he was not bullied as much as I was. Uh, and and I, I paid attention to that in school and I re- found out the reason why he lifted weights and he was a very intimidating guy. So he got me in, involved in weightlifting. So I used to go to his house. And the only reason I lift weights because I wanted to be intimidating as he was so I wouldn't get as bullied. Uh, well, one night I stayed over and, and I panicked because my mom always told me to get home before dark and it, it had gotten dark. I wasn't paying attention. So I decided to take a shortcut uh, through some railroad tracks behind a high school. And there I encountered a guy who just showed up out of nowhere. And this guy grabbed me, dragged me underneath the set of bleachers and he raped me. 
And once he was done raping me, uh, he climbed on top of me and he began choking me. And at that point, I didn't know what to do, but I knew he didn't want me to leave from under those bleachers. Uh, when I didn't die quick enough for him, he started slamming my head on the ground and I started losing consciousness. And I just began to fight, uh, I began to fight because I didn't want to die alone in the dark underneath those bleachers. But my, my biggest concern was I didn't want my mom worrying about me. And so that led to me fighting this guy, running all the way home, him chasing me to a point where he gave up. When I got it, ran into the street, and cars started moving and, and dodging me. They thought I was some crazy person, but I intentionally did that to get their attention. Uh, and even then, people didn't stop. Um, so I walked all the way home. I walked through a shopping plaza, a busy shopping plaza, with no shoes, no shirt, blood, uh, mixed with mud, and people just moved out of the way. You know, you got this 12-year-old boy <laughs> who, who obviously looks like he's in distress, and people just moved out of the way. I stayed in one of those neighborhoods, you know, you mind your own business. Um, so when I got home, my mom looked at me, and, and she was just so afraid, and I saw the fear in her face, and I couldn't dare tell her what actually happened, you know. One, the stigma of being a male or something like that happening to you. And some of the things that I was made to do at such a young age, uh, and just to to protect her um, knowing what happened and her feeling guilty. I just told her I was robbed. Some guys took my shoes and shirt. And she wanted to call the police, but I didn't want to call the police because I knew if the police came, they probably would have pressed me for the truth and I wasn't ready to tell my truth. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I grew up as a, as a survivor of abuse, and I never told anyone. Uh, I, and when I became a police officer some decades later, <laughs> I still had that secret. Uh, and so uh, that was something I carried with me for, for, for decades and years. So, yeah. So as a detective, um, I had this secret, but it allowed me to connect with victims on a whole nother level and on a level that other detectives couldn't connect with victims because I saw myself in those victims. Um, so it built a trust level. They were being heard. It was, it was a different type of listening. I wasn't listening for information. I was listening for, for connection and communication. And that led them to share more information with me, which led to more case closures. Um, and so, yeah, that was a different perspective. So, uh, uh, gosh, where do I even start? Um, I'm sorry that 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 you went through that, that that happened to you. Thank you. Do you believe that that's what then helped you later as a detective? You mentioned earlier m more cases were closed. You heard more information. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was a huge part of that. Yeah, it's interesting because I never wanted to be a police officer, let alone a detective. I was in the military. I actually ran away from home, what I call it. At the age of 17, I no longer wanted to stay in Memphis, in which I was from, where the incident occurred. So subconsciously, I wanted to get away. And the Army was the biggest, you know, uh, door for me to walk through. Uh, mm -hmm. They wanted me. And that, that, that alone made me feel important, like somebody wanted me as I was, you know, the army wanted me to join. I had this recruiter who was really following me around and begging me to join. So that gave me a sense of being wanted. And so I left, I left, went to the military for eight years and I left the military and I joined the police department. And, and so that right there kind of led me to uh, seeing things on a whole new level that I've never seen before. And so I got involved in a shooting. Um, in, in my eight years of police work, and I was almost killed during that encounter. 
where I stopped some guys who had just murdered, did a home invasion and murdered a guy and I got in a car chase with him and they jumped out the car with AK-47s and I had to defend myself from my service weapon, ended up shooting one of them. Um, and so I survived that, you know, you know, and so I, I, at that point I wanted to quit police work because I was like, wow, I just wanted a paycheck, man. I didn't want to get killed, you know? Yeah. I was like, man, this is, this is getting real. <laughs> so yeah. one of my friends suggested uh, become a detective and uh, I put in for it and, and, and the way it works down here in Atlanta, you don't get to choose where you go. It's almost like the military, they choose where they want you to go. And I had never heard of a special victim detective. I didn't know what they did. And so uh, once I started investigating abuse, they never taught me about abuse. They never taught me about trauma, but it, it connected. I mean, it was like I was born for it. It, it, it wasn't. It was like things just came naturally to me. So something you said just kind of hit me. They, they never taught you about trauma. They no. never taught you about abuse. They put you into this special victims unit, which, yeah. of course, we all know, Law and Order SVU. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I imagine it's not like TV at all. Um, but not at all. But if they didn't teach you about trauma and about abuse. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, like, gosh, how are you even equipped to deal with that other than being a survivor? What, like, that has to be such a difficult position to be in. Yeah, it was. I think psychoeducation, I became curious. I tell people curiosity uh, helps you discover things about life and yourself that you, you, you have to have the courage. Curiosity requires courage. So I became curious as to why some of my victims, some of my detectives, my fellow detectives have a problem in interviewing victims. Uh, I want to know what was the difference between me and them. I mean, I worked six severe rape cases and solved all of them, all of those cases. I worked child murder, murder cases. And it was actually another detective that, that gave me some insight. He came to me, and he pulled me aside. He said, it seems like every time they assign you these cases, they get solved. And he, and he said something that I never thought about. He said, I think God is helping me. And that just, blew me away and I never had thought about that. And I was like, wow, maybe my, my victim hood had a purpose. Like, you know, like I survived that for a reason. And now I've found my reason. Uh, and I believe every seed finds its place to grow. And I always tell people now that the ground that this guy tried to bury me in, became the very ground that God planted me in. Um, what was meant to produce death actually was the seed that was gonna produce life. I just couldn't see it then, but now it's happening as I go out and speak about what happened to me and helping other victims understand what happens when they get victimized, when they get abused. Kevin, that's incredible. Yeah. The, that, the curiosity requires courage. Yeah. Every seed that grows just my my goodness what a perspective yeah yeah um so going going back mm -hmm. you talked about um not telling for for yeah. decades even yeah can you can you answer why you didn't tell well there was a bunch of things going on in my head you know i was a male and back then you know back in the 80s and, and, and you know late 80s you know homosexuality was one of these things that was and it still is to this day, but even back then more so demonized. And, and so I had these sexuality questions, like, does this make me uh, like men? And, you know, I had sex forced upon me by men. And I got to remember, I never knew my father. I never had any male role models, mentorship. So my view of males became 
very uh, skewed as to to the point where I didn't trust males at all. And so um, I had all kinds of things going through my head. Does this make me, am I weak because I didn't fight back? Uh, am I the only, I have to be the only guy in the world this has ever happened to. Like, this is crazy. Like, and so I had all these thoughts and so I developed coping mechanisms, destructive coping mechanisms. So sex was forced upon me as a form of power. And so growing up, I began to see sex as, as a tool of power. So sex became my way of feeling any type of worth or value. So as a result of that, um, I became addicted to sex. I became uh, a sex addict. I used other coping mechanisms, mechanisms such as alcohol abuse, um, you know, and just things like that to cope with these thoughts that I was having about myself. But as a male in a, in a, in a patriarchal culture that says that males can't be vulnerable and males can't be raped. And every time I talk about my incident, I use rape intentionally. Um, because a lot of people like to use sexual assaulted or, uh, or uh, you know, sodomized and, and it kind of downplays the forceful nature of the event itself. And, you know, there were times when I first started speaking about this on stages, I would have people come up to me and say that I didn't have to be so graphic or I didn't have to tell my story the way I did. It was hard to listen to. And at first that took me back. And I, I remember being so ashamed and, and afraid to tell my story after that until I got the courage to say, you know, if, you, if it was hard for you to listen to it, you should try living with it every day, you know? So, um, so it was hard, you know, in silence, uh, added to the, the pain because when you cannot express your pain, you find alternative ways to, to, to act it out. And a lot of those ways become destructive because I believe there's no such things as secrets. Uh, and there's no such thing as silence. Silence is, silence is not the absence of sound. Uh, it's not the uh, inability to hear sound. It's actually the absence of sound. There's no such thing as silence. We're always communicating. It's just that not everybody hears the same way. And for me, being heard led to being healed. It wasn't until I was able to tell my story that I was able to overcome uh, the, the, what happened to me. And it's, it's such an incredible opportunity to hear your story because you know, the, the, the stats tell us that while it's one in five women yeah. to face rape in their lifetime, it's supposedly one in 71 men in the U S yeah. yeah. And that sounds like a really, like it's so rare, but that's, I mean, out of a, a few hundred men, that's a couple of men. Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably, maybe it's underreported based on what you just said. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's definitely underreported. So when I tell my story, I, mean, I tell my story to a lot of audience audiences, a lot of them police officers, and I can tell you, it hasn't failed yet. After every speech, every uh, encounter, I have someone come up to me afterwards, a male, would tell me that they also a victim. I've had coworkers once they heard my story come to me and tell me that they also were molested as children. And these were male. And so it's underreported because we live in a society. We live in a society that's not victim-friendly, period. You know, um, And we live in a society that tells men that, but we can't feel or we can't be vulnerable. And so, and so we use sex as a form of power. And so inadvertently, 
as I did, I abused women. I didn't abuse them in a physical sense or psychological sense, but I used them for my own sexual gratification. And my definition of abuse or the definition of abuse, uh, once I looked it up, helped me understand that what I was doing was abusive. You know, abuse is a, a compound word. The root word is use, where we get our word uh, utility from, which means purpose, power, or potential. And AB is a prefix. And, you know, anytime you put a prefix in front of a root word, you change the meaning of the root word. And so AB means to kill, steal, or to take away something. So abuse or abuse means to kill, steal, or to take away someone's purpose, power, or potential. Hmm. You know, and so if I'm using somebody for other than the purpose of loving them, then that's abuse. Hmm. That's so good. Yeah. And it's and it's one of those things too. I you know, I've heard in conversation with people, well, you know, so and so groped me or they touched me. And for a guy to say that, like, that's a big yeah. deal. But in reality, I mean, you use the word rape. Yeah. That, I mean, my gosh, call it what yeah. it is, right? Yeah. It's such a, yeah, so, so yeah, powerful. It's such a, and you think about it too, our body is the only thing that we come to earth in full possession of, right? Mm-hmm. And so someone molests and take that right away from us, I have to live with this body for the rest of my life. So, you know, what? it's almost like I'm carrying this weight with me if I don't get healed from what happened to me and understand the trauma that's going on inside my brain. Uh, I, I view my body as, 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 as a weight or I see it as a power instrument to be used to gain power from others. And so that leads to a, a, another form of abuse. Uh, so I, I don't really see you as a person. I objectify you because the only way I see you is as an object for my gratification. And so there's no intimacy, there's no connection with the individual, the person you become involved with. And so you never get into real relationships. And what happens is you, 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 you start not only becoming afraid of intimacy, you start avoiding it. And after those years of not telling, mm-hmm. how did that feel to get that uh, off of you as a way and to get it into the hands of someone else? It was interesting because I never, never thought I would tell. I thought I was carrying this to my grave. Um, and so one day I was in the office. It's interesting how this happened. I was in the office, like everything in my life. Uh, I, I didn't choose it. It chose me. Like I was in the office by myself one day and a, our district attorney had a meeting or a class that she had overbooked herself. She couldn't beat it. And it was like a hundred miles from here. And so somebody from my office called and said, was there any detective available to teach the class? And I was like, no, I'm the only one here. And so they were like, what about you? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not doing it. <laughs> so, you know, uh, so they asked me again. I said, yeah, I do it. And it was on my off day. So, you know, that was really a double whammy. Like, I didn't want to use my only off day traveling 100 miles to teach. You know, and it was some nurses, some same nurses, sexual assault nurses who actually you know, collect the evidence for, for detectives regarding these type of cases. And so I agreed to it, but then when I hung up with the phone, I was like, oh my God, what I got myself into? I don't know what I'm talking about. I've never taught anybody. I've never sat in front of people. And the only thing I can come up with is just telling my story, you know? And so when I told them my story, I looked out into the audience and everybody was crying. And I said, wow. And I didn't know the impact. And so then I had people coming up to me say they were victims of sexual assault as well. And it was the first time they ever told anyone was when they told me. And they said, watching me tell my story gave them the courage to share their story. And you just saw the relief that they, in their faces. And I was like, man. And so I kept getting invited back to the same class. 
And then one day the, the facilitator of the class asked me, are you willing to travel? I said, yeah. And at the time I had, I had, I had gotten a divorce. I was broke beyond measure. <laughs> I had an old jalopy car that was dripping more fluids than you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, and I had this, I had change that I was saving up for gas money. I had it like a little Ziploc bag just for emergency case because, because I needed for gas. So that's how broke I was. I was sleeping on the floor uh, in an empty apartment. Um, and so when she told me, I just said, yes, I didn't know how I was going to afford to get it. She said, they're not going to pay you. Okay. They don't know who you are. And I was like, wow. Okay. So it was in North Carolina. So, okay. So I got in the car, I had a half a tank of gas and I was going to use that change to fill the tank up. I said, no, I may have to eat because they're not going to feed me either. So when I pulled in, I never forget it was at a resort and uh, it was a Bojangles across from the resort and it had like five pieces of chicken for five hours. I was like, bingo. <laughs> so I pulled up to the Bojangles and I told the lady, I apologize. I said, excuse me, I'm going to give you a bunch of change, but this is all I got. She said, no worries. And she didn't even count. She just took it and gave me the chicken. So I knew I was going to be at this console for two days. I was going to, you know, snack off this chicken, you know, for two, two days. And so the conference came and they had me in this little room and they told me, you know, come in and people started coming in and I was, okay. So I talked the first day. And so it was like, are you eating? And you had to have a pass that you paid for and go eat. I said, no, I'm not really that hungry. <laughs> you know, not wanting to tell you I didn't have money to eat. Jump on that man, jump. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I went to my room and I ate my chicken. And then the next day I saw this line of people outside of that same room, like, People were grabbing chairs and walking in the room. And I was like, oh, my, they, they must have moved me, right, to another class. <laughs> I looked on the, 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 the door, and it was still my name. I was like, what's going on? She was like, Kevin, we got to move you to a bigger room because people heard you teach yesterday, and you did talk at a conference. And so not everybody wants to come to your class. And then after that, people started asking me from all over the country, will you come speak for us? Will you come speak for us? And next thing you know, I was speaking all over the country. And it was interesting. And it was funny because the way I was traveling, I was going up a mountain. Uh, it was like, I went up a mountain one way, but I came down another way. And so after that, my, my speaking career took off to the point where a couple of years later, I was resigning from the police department. And so that part of that speaking career now, mm -hmm. from what I understand from this article, um, is to talk to nonprofits about abuse and spotting signs of abuse, talk to police departments, to um, youth groups about sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that you talk about is spotting possible abuse to be mm -hmm. able to help the victims without them even knowing that they can tell somebody. Yeah. What are some of those um, red flags that you, that you teach on? Yeah, I, I teach basically off the science based off that when, when someone is abused, they're traumatized normally. Trauma is the response to the abuse itself. And the brain is doing its job by, by doing certain things, by, by becoming very overprotective. So you start seeing people uh, protect themselves, isolate themselves, children who are normally rambunctious or outgoing and, 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 and friendly normally become isolated. And then you start seeing the part of the brain that after someone's traumatized, the amygdala and the survival brain becomes more hypersensitive. And so it's hard for the brain to focus because the brain that focuses and the brain that focuses on survival are two different parts of the brain. So it's hard for children who are thinking about danger and who have been traumatized to focus. So a lot of times you see that in school settings. And so teachers and educators are the first persons who see these signs when the grade starts to drop you know, substantially, or kids start to acting differently. So some of the signs are, are, are mostly behavioral. 
then I tell parents, if you know your child, if your child starts acting, you know, differently and such, like for me, you know, one of the things I did once I learned about trauma and the effects of trauma, I went back and looked at my childhood. And I said, were these things there in my childhood? Kind of, I almost became a detective on my own case. I went back and pretended that I was investigating my case. And boy, what is there? It was there all the time. I told you I was bullied as a young kid. After my assault, if you bullied me, I will fight. Before then, I just took it. Even to the point where I actually stabbed a kid in high school after the incident for bullying making fun of me. My mm -hmm. grades went from straight A's and B's to straight C's. Uh, the only reason they was straight C's, I had to play for sports. And in Tennessee, there was no pass, no play. You had to have a C average. Uh, I isolated myself. I didn't go outside. I didn't, I didn't talk to family members. All these drastic changes in behavior, but nobody paid attention. But what they said was I was a bad person. I was yeah. a bad kid. And so no one was able to, to really hear. And so what I tell people is you have to train yourself to listen for abuse because you won't see it. Right? Um, trauma communicates through uh, behaviors and you have to be able to listen to behaviors and not judge behaviors because a lot of people once you judge something you become deaf to you can't hear it and a lot of times we judge these children's behavior not ask some questions why do they behave that way why has this person changed so one of the major things that i look for and i teach organizations now is about behavior changes you know the brain because the brain is doing its job once it's traumatized the part of the brain that focuses, the part of the brain that reaches out and takes risks to socially interact with others it shuts down, right? We become very uh, uh, fearful and very cautious. But that's the brain telling us, you know, it's not safe. And so you start seeing some of those behaviors. So it really, really uh, tell parents to really know your child, to know, and if something like that has happened or your child begins to show these different types of emotions and behaviors, you want to create an environment where they feel safe coming out and telling you. I can't tell you how many cases I've worked where the parent or the environment that the child is in, they don't feel safe, so they go tell the teacher. And that's what, that was one of the clues that I used to teach detectives. You, it, who the child told is really a sign, right? Why didn't they tell mom? Why didn't they tell dad? Why did they tell, right? So uh, I tell parents that you have to create a culture or an environment where it's safe to talk about things like that. And I didn't feel like my environment was safe because I grew up in an abusive home watching my mom get abused. And, and so I didn't want to add to that. And, and that brings up something that I wrote down earlier when you said um, at, a, at a young age, you had to deal with this. Yeah. Uh, with sexuality, with, the, with an assault, with rape. Mm -hmm. That coupled with what you just said really makes me, makes me wonder. Yeah. I mean, we need as parents, we need to be talking to our kids about this. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, what, what may seem like an, unfortunately, a young age, Yeah, you know, eight, yeah. nine, 10 years old, maybe even younger, tell them ab about their body parts and how people yeah. don't need to touch anything. So, I mean, is that an, an, an agreement then? Should we be talking to our kids young and, and oh, yeah. in a safe space? Oh yeah. That's why I wrote a book called Talk About Abuse Book. Talk is an acronym for teach all little kids about mm -hmm. abuse, right? Because it's, it's, it's interesting. We teach our kids other things, but we don't teach them about protecting our bodies. We teach them about, you know, uh, you know, what not to say or how not to behave, but they learn from improper touches when it happens. And so they're shocked. And normally what happens is, and science and statistics has bear this out, that most of the time, the people who are doing this are people that they know. 
So can you imagine as a child you're being trained to respect the adults, listen to adults, but oftentimes it's an adult that's causing the harm. Mm-hmm. And so if you haven't had that conversation, then children think it's okay. You know, like I had one instance where a child didn't know the proper name for their, their, their sexual parts, and she called her vagina. Her mom told her to call her vagina a pocketbook. So the kid went to school and told the teacher, hey, my uncle keeps playing with my pocketbook. And so the teacher, thinking that it was a real pocketbook, said, well, tell your uncle stop playing with your pocketbook. <laughs> so now in the child's mind, it's okay for adults to play with your pocketbook but because the teacher didn't have a, a, a drastic reaction. Yeah. So the young kid did what they thought was right, but then when it wasn't responded to correctly, the child was confused. And so a lot of times, oh, we try to sweep it on the rug. You have families who say, we want to handle this in-house. Or we have people that, that suspect themselves, threatens the child. Like, you're going to go to jail, or I'm going to go to jail, or your mom's going to be mad at you. And oftentimes, that's what ends up happening is when something happened or the child disclosed, they have a response from their parents that, of course, which is natural, you're going to be upset when you find out your child has been abused in any type of way. But the child is interpreting that response just like the, the person who abused them told your mom, your dad's going to get upset with you, that you did something wrong. Right. And then as law enforcement and then social services, oftentimes when we come in, we sometimes take the child out of the home. Well, we think that of, as protective measures can be seen from the child as a, a punitive measure. I'm being punished now because I told. Now they've taken me from mom and daddy. So we have to really reevaluate how we educate our children. Uh, about abuse and about, because a lot of times what I find out and what I discover is that a lot of the parents who are are parents of the victims, they themselves have been abused. And so they don't know how to handle or or confront it when it happens to their child. And so education is a big key component of what I do. Yeah. Um, So you also said earlier that we are not in a victim-friendly society very much. And (laughs) And you said earlier that you weren't taught about trauma and stuff going into your job. And now as you're talking about this, that, you know, social services may take the children out thinking Mm -hmm. that it's for safety, but looking punitive. How do we even start to change this? You said education is key, but how do we begin to have this conversation even? Yeah, because education for me is is, is the answer. I love what Nelson Mandela said. He said education is the most powerful tool you can use to change the world. And that's what helped me. Once I understood how trauma affected my decision making, how it affected my inability to focus, I wasn't a person who couldn't learn. It's just my brain was not focused on learning, it was focused on survival. And when, when the survival brain is different from the social brain, we actually grow and become healthy when we socially able to interact socially. And so what we need to do is understand how abuse affects our culture. And I think abuse is at the, at, the, at the root cause of everything bad in our society. I think we name it different things, but I think at the root cause, it's abuse. And I think the way we start this conversation, start being honest about uh, the effects of abuse. Because effects, you know, abuse is, is an epidemic we're not willing to talk about. We want to talk about the symptoms of abuse, but not the root cause. So violence in our culture is a result of abuse. If I can't express my emotions in a constructive way, I choose a destructive way to express, particularly as a male. There's a reason men are more violent than women, right? That's the only way we see a, a, a manly form of expressing pain is through anger and through violence. And so 
we have to educate not only ourselves, but we have to start educating our children. We educate them on biology, but we don't educate them on how trauma affects the brain, stops them from learning, affects their relationships, it affects their decision-making. Um, so a lot of children like me are doing things to cope, not understanding what's causing us to make these decisions and behaviors. And when you know better, you do better. And so I think we have to, we have to revamp the whole school system. Like one of the things I'm working on now is developing these emojis, right? These emojis that have emotions on them, sad, happy, scared, and put them on children's desks, right, at school. And so children will have the option of circling how they feel on that particular day. And then there'll be another question, do you want to discuss? Yeah, do you want to talk about it? Yes or no, they can choose if they want to talk about it or not. That way as an educator, I'm walking around the room, I can see what, what, what emotions children are feeling that particular day and why they're responding to me in a certain way. And it also allows other students to see and look over and say, oh, she's feeling sad today, right? So I think once we become comfortable with expressing our pain as it relates to what's happening to us, we become more educated and we become more empowered to do something about it. I think ignoring it like we are now is causing it to be rampant. And if I'm a perpetrator, I want you to ignore it. I want you not to talk to your kid. I want you not to discuss body parts and proper touches because you're giving me, you're giving me the consent by actually not educating your child upon abuse. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and we really can start at a very young age. In fact, one of, the, one of your books, uh, Understanding Child Abuse Investigations for Mommies and Daddies. Mm -hmm. um, you've, so you've written several books. That There's yeah. The Invisible Boy. There's the one you talked yeah. about a little bit ago. I yeah. mean, and, and you've got a workbook for detectives. My, yeah. I mean, like this is now your calling. You've taken your yeah. trauma and turned it into your testimony. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Teaching. Yeah. Um, where, so... Amazon, obviously. Where else can we find these books? Is Amazon the best place? You can find it on my website, the12project.com. Uh, a lot of my stuff is on my website, podcasts, and I'm in the process of creating. That's why I told you about my camera equipment that I'm setting up, online courses yeah. where people can go every day and learn about trauma and abuse and trying to make it not only just informational, but trying to make it uh, where people can go and learn. You know, Because what I found out is people are, are interested in this information. And when I did my investigation, another thing that set me apart was I sat the families down and told them what to expect as a result of what happened versus detectives who just brought their children in and said, okay, we're going to go to the back room. You stay in the lobby. We're going to go talk to your kid, bring your kid back out, hang your kid back to you, and we'll give you a court date. You know, and so parents felt like they weren't even involved in the process of their children getting healed. So it led to frustration. That's why I created, you know, child abuse investigations for mommy and dad is they talk about from A to B what's going to happen. Who are these people calling you and asking you these same questions that I asked you, right? What can you expect? There's, that's trauma. What is trauma? You know, and so when we help parents and families understand how we're all connected and how if a child is abused, it's going to affect the whole family, the whole family is abused, then they know what to expect going forward. They know the changes that's going to happen, not to punish the child for acting out because that's the trauma causing the child to act out. But if you punish the child for acting out, Right? You're doubling up on the trauma because now the child is traumatized by what happened. Then they traumatized because now as a result of what happened, no one's willing to listen to them. And so sometimes behavior comes a form of communication. And if nobody wants to listen to my communication in a constructive way, if I choose a destructive way, 
can people see past my behavior to hear my pain? And so that's what we're seeing a lot in our streets. We're seeing pain, right? The violence that we're trying to arrest trauma. You can't arrest trauma, right? So we're putting people in jail who are in pain from childhood experiences. And not only that, there are studies now, adverse childhood experiences has now shown that unresolved trauma results in health issues, right? People who have, who have suffered from trauma are more likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol. They're more likely to develop cancer, diabetes, obesity. These, because the body keeps score, the body doesn't forget the pain. The body, if you don't talk about your pain, the body begins to, begins to actually grab onto it and, and, and just connect and attach itself to it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, out of all of God's creation, we're the only creation God gave the ability to speak. And you think about that as a child, you come out, you can't stand up, you can't grab nothing, but boy, you come out that womb, you can yell that voice, mm-hmm. right? So our voice is our power. But when you silence my voice, you take away my power. And if I can't tell you my pain, right, and then I, I can't be healed because being heard leads to being healed. The only way I was in the healing process, I was able to tell my story. And the way I think of healing, I don't think of healing with ED. I don't think you can add ED to heal. I think it's always ING. Because I think you'll always be in the process of healing. Because there's always this layer, you know, that gets unpeeled each time you you have the courage to to interact, you know, mm-hmm. to, to tell your pain. You know, particularly for male species, you know, I tell people a lot, you know, that's why a lot of things you see social media, you see these dating sites, because men have not been taught as children not to be open and intimate and be vulnerable. And as a result of that, all of our relationships, if you look at kids, I'm telling you, for me, kids are the wisest beings on earth, Mm -hmm. right? Because they haven't been acculturated, they haven't been taught to hide their emotions. If children feel it some they let it out, but we teach our children not to express their emotions. We spank them for crying. We have sayings like, keep crying, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> right? Or I brought you into this world and I'll take you out. I'll take you out, yep. Yeah. Or what happens in this house stays in this house. So we teach our kids from the very onset not to tell. And so they become, you know, weary of talking about pain. Mm-hmm. And yet Jesus told us that we have to have faith like a child in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. So When, when he was asked who was the greatest in the kingdom, right. he believed the child. Right, because children, really, we got it backwards. Mm-hmm. Children should be our teachers. Mm-hmm. Teach us how to be free, how to be honest, how to be open. Right. So we grow up and we get rid of that childhood. You know, and and I don't think you ever die as a child. I don't think you ever grow up. I think your body grows, but your inner child remains a child. I think we try to become socially correct by pretending that we still don't have childlike feelings or, or, or desires. You know, children dream. They don't see anything as impossible. They don't mm-hmm. see limits, right? right. <laughs> but as adults, we grow up and we, 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 we put limits on ourselves. And so I think every person has a child in them that needs to be healed. Mm-hmm. That's, that's beautiful. Be, being more childlike, more open, more curious, all of that takes courage and just so yeah. much 
love in what you're telling me. I don't know if I'm in a, in the middle of a sermon or an educational <laughs> thing here. Like, but man, I'm, I'm, I'm eating it up, Kevin. Thank you so well, much for I that. I appreciate you. I appreciate um, So let's, you mentioned the 12 project.com. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about the 12 project. What, okay. is, what is that? The 12 project is, 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 has multiple meanings. Uh, I was assaulted when I was 12. Um, and for me, it comes from scripture. It comes from Matthew 10 and one. Jesus, it says that Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them power over abusive spirits. And so the disciples' real job was not really to bring people to Christ, but was to heal people from their, their pain, their trauma. And so as a disciple, uh, the 12 Project, I wanted to, because 12 is, is also symbolic, 12 people on the jury, 12 hours in a day, it stands for renewal and justice. So the reason Jesus chose 12 disciples, there's a reason there's 12 tribes in Israel, it's, 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 it's symbolic of justice. And so the 12 project for me, I wanted to go back to the original calling of the disciples, which was to heal abuse and get away from all this other commercial stuff, you know? <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So focus back on healing. And, and because I tell people, people forget Jesus was not only a healer, but he was an educator. And he educated people about what ailed them and what pained them. And so, what, 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 what my goal is now is to help people heal through education. And that's the tagline of the 12 Project, educating the world on the effects of abuse. Because I believe once people understand, like I did, wow. So my addiction to sex was really not an addiction. It was just me trying to get validation through sex, which I thought was a form of power. Wow, it gave me power to stop it, right? My drinking, wow. Now I knew every time I went for a drink, it was because I was feeling rejected. Or I was feeling not good enough in the situation. So the only way I had to calm that sense of being powerless was to grab a drink or grab sex. So those became my two tools. But when I went to church, you know what they told me? They told me, don't fornicate and don't drink. But nobody listened to my pain as to why I was doing it. They were judging me and not listening. And so oftentimes I was getting talked to, but I was never getting listened to. Mm-hmm. So you can't be healed by being talked to. You got to be healed by being listened to. That's why therapy works. Mm. Right? That's why prayer works. When you really believe that there's a, there's a God out there who really hears your pain and you don't have to hide it. You don't have to be superficial with it. You know, you don't have to say, well, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. <laughs> right? <laughs> you can really say, you know what? I feel like crap and here's why. Mm. I'm lonely. Right? I got all these people around me, but I'm lonely. And the reason that I'm lonely is because no one really knows me because I'm, to be honest with you, I feel like an imposter because everywhere I go, I have to be something that I'm not. And I'm afraid to be who I am because if I be who I am, I'm afraid people will leave me. Mm-hmm. So I'm lonely even though I'm around people, even though I come home every day, I'm lonely. And so now my spouse doesn't have the best of me because now they can't reveal who they are, what their pain and fears are because they're afraid of upsetting the cart or creating an imbalance in the relationship. So now you both walking around the house afraid to be who you are, but your house is supposed to be a place where you can do that. Mm-hmm. And so I talk to churches in religion because oftentimes churches add to that dilemma because they don't teach about trauma. They want people to be healed instantaneously. And when you lay your hands on people and they say, oh, I'm healed, but they go home and they have to struggle with the same things over again, they start judging themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to love what you judge. So if I'm judging myself, it's hard to love myself. Mm. That's good. Yeah. And, and I, I, I love the instantaneous healing 
laying of hands can be powerful, but then there's also so much work to be had. And what you just said really resonates with me and hopefully with listeners too. Like you, it's not always instantaneous and there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. I love the, the mission of the 12 project to to motivate change in the world through abuse education. That is so powerful. Yeah. And what's so, what's so, what's so, what's so powerful about healing is that you have to partake in your own healing. Mm-hmm. Like, no one can do it for you. And here's mm-hmm. the thing that I get in trouble with, not even God. God asks for your participation in your healings. Because mm-hmm. there have been people I grew up around, I know have been molested and know have been abused and they're still addicted to alcohol, drugs. They still feel sorry for themselves and bad for themselves. And, you know, and I said, the only difference between me and them, right, was somehow God put me in a position where I knew I had to do the work. I had to be willing to courageous enough to face what I feared. And when you face what you fear, it leads to faith. That's the only way to have faith, to be able to face what you fear. Mm -hmm. Because if not, fear will cause you to run away. And I said, the genius and the wisdom of God, that God puts your answer and your wisdom in your pain. And that's interesting. Because to discover mm-hmm. how to get out of your pain, you have to face it, right? And so that's what stops a lot of people from healing. They don't want to face the pain. They want to cope with it. And we teach people how to cope, right? We mm-hmm. teach you, you get a big house, get a big car, you'll feel better about yourself. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's, yeah, and that's not at all. We've got to get oh, deep okay. into it. Yeah, yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for schooling us. You have absolutely created a huge fan in me. Um, <laughs> after reading your article, I thought I knew that it would be a good conversation, but yes, my goodness, so much here. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you want to make sure listeners of I'm not in an abusive relationship definitely walk away with? Yeah, and when you start talking about abusive relationships, I think I want people to understand that you can be in an abusive relationship with yourself. And if that is the case, uh, you make yourself more susceptible to other abusive relationships because abuse happens we live in a world where it's not abuse it's not victim friendly mm. and many of us have gone through traumas in our lives and we're wondering you know is there a way out you know i tell people this before you look for a way out look for a way in begin to look inside and really be honest with yourself how has this affected me? Am I still hurting over something that happened in my childhood? A lot of us are living out childhood pain and don't even know. It. We're making decisions on something that happened to us in our childhood because we're not willing to face it. And so what happens a lot of times is that we don't want to really look at ourselves and say, I really have the power to do something about this. And that's very hard for an abuse victim because you could have never told me that before I learned about trauma and how it affected my brain and how it affected the wiring of my brain, how it affected how my brain saw the world, how I saw God and how I saw others. You know, you, you've just been talking, you know, but until you, I educated myself and found ways to put myself in environments that were victim friendly, environments where people were willing to listen rather than give me advice. Because a lot of times we're so quick to try to throw advice at people that they don't really want the advice, they want it to be heard. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I would tell people, uh, focus on healing, healing. And I think when you focus on healing, what ends up happening is that God meets you because God is a healer. And I think when you focus on healing and make that your primary goal, 
you'll find out that the world opens up to you in such a, a, a unique way. You'll find things happen and that you'll get more of the things that you desire because you don't desire them to feel worthy of them. You actually desire them from your heart and your spirit and you become a giver rather than someone who takes from life, you give life. And I think that's why we all need to be healed. It's because we were born to give life. Mm-hmm. And so when you are abused and traumatized, you become so concerned about your life that you don't become a person who's able to actually give life to others because you live your whole life in survival mode. Yeah. You know, you live your whole life surviving, but never live one day in your life. And mm-hmm. so healing allows you to experience life in a whole different way. And I love how you said earlier, being heard leads to healing. Yeah. And yeah. So, so find that resource. And that's of course where, where we are. Yeah. Um, you know, at Dasis, you know, the, the 800 line, uh, yeah. DasisMI.org. Um, but yeah, find, find someone that you can talk to, to be heard yeah. to that healing. So Kevin, thank you so much for this. Um, thank you, sir. The 12 project.com is where people can find you. Any, yeah. any other, any other places um, you want to send people on social media or anything? I'm on Instagram, uh, Kevin underscore McNeil underscore. Uh, okay. yeah, they can find me on Instagram. That's my main tool of communication. Um, and so, and I'm putting together a program, a platform where they can go online and they can learn about abuse. Uh, they can learn about trauma. They can learn how I became the process I took to becoming healed. They can learn why I went down on the same football field. I was abused at and played football for four years. Never once thought about it, how that happened and, and why I think God led me down there. Um, so they'll learn about a lot of things on that. It's a process. Yeah. And I think that's what I want people to walk away with, that healing is a process that you must take part in. Uh, it doesn't happen outside of you. It happens because of you. Very well said. Kevin, once again, thank you so much. Listeners, check Kevin out on Instagram and at the12project.com. Kevin, thank you. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to I'm Not In an Abusive Relationship. If these stories resonate with you and you need help, please visit our website, dasasmi.org. That's dasasmi.org. Or call our hotline at 800 828 2023. We are here to walk alongside you. Now, if you know someone who might benefit from our show, please share it. Social media, email, simply telling someone about it all help us spread the word and help us to combat domestic and sexual violence. We also welcome financial and volunteer support. That information is on our website. Thank you to the staff, volunteers, and board of directors at Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services. This podcast is produced with the help of a committee of dedicated advocates. Thank you to WBET Radio in Sturgis, Michigan for the use of their studio. This has been a podcast about surviving domestic and sexual violence and a production of Domestic and Sexual Abuse Services of Michigan.